Showtime Sports presents Showtime Boxing with Eric Raskin and Kieran Mulvaney. Hello and welcome to another edition of Showtime Boxing with Raskin and Mulvaney. With my co-host Eric Raskin, I am Kieran Mulvaney. And Eric, since we last talked, I've had a fun but exhausting week. Uh, my brother came to visit from England, as I mentioned to you, I think. And uh, it's the first time I've seen him in three and a half years. And it's the first time he's visited me here in Vermont. And I figured there was no better way to introduce him to rural America than the particular joy of a rural 4th of July parade. And uh, yeah, he, he seemed to enjoy the whole experience, actually, I think. Um, and of course, you know, I'm sure it's the case, same case with you. I always take advantage of having a visitor to go to all the nearby places I normally would never actually make the, the effort to visit. So I actually got to be a tourist in, in my own state. So that was good. Fun. So um, but I'm kind of pooped. I am not used to having other humans uh, in my house for so long and I, uh, he's gone, he's back, he's happy, he's in England and, uh, I enjoyed it, but, uh, I, I slept a lot immediately after he left. <laughs> right. I, I am pooped. Um, but, uh, well, you would know what it's like to suddenly feel free. Although, uh, as my house guest departed, I believe that your new bachelor existence we talked about the other week is a bit interrupted yeah you know i had a good run kieran uh seven days of just me and man's best friend otis in the house uh some high quality napping and tv binging got done uh but uh now i have some unexpected house guests Uh, i i I got the call from my kids summer camp as covid starts to spread there as covid is wont to do uh that my daughter (laughs) tested positive as did one of her best friends and that friend is from canada And the camp's protocol is to send home anyone who tests positive until they aren't positive anymore. And everyone agreed it made a lot more sense for the friend to come to my house than to ship her back to Canada. Ah, right. So now I have two patients staying with me, quarantining. It's good that they can at least quarantine together. Um, It's preferable to just my daughter being home and me having to think of ways to entertain her. Um, But uh, they're in the house. I am taking precautions. Um... But still, this might ultimately prove a test of how much immunity I have uh, from infection to this particular variant now, about two months after getting some similar variant. Uh, so fun times, Kieran. Uh, you know, I got to say, I-, I see the boss man, Stephen Espinoza, on TV sitting ringside, always wearing a mask. He's usually the only person on the screen masking. <laughs> There's a chance he's just smarter than everyone else. <laughs> it turns out COVID is like real and like still here and stuff and uh, and it's interfering with my alone time which is really not cool so is eli the last one standing in the house now no Ooh, he was the he was he, the fir- he was the first he was the one not standing okay. yeah he got it okay. back in january well before any of the rest of us so, so. otis then <laughs> right we and we haven't been testing otis but as far <laughs> as we know he, he is covid free Oh man! Oh well, but they but the plan is they'll when they test negative, you get to ship them off again, and although of course then Robin will be back. So exactly at the at okay. the at the bare minimum, they will have one day of overlap where uh, my wife is home before they go back. Um, hopefully, it is the bare minimum, and they do get to go back to camp uh, on the soon end of the possible spectrum. But uh, yeah, so no, my alone time is over. It's done. I had mm-hmm. I had I had my fun. I got most of the TV watching done that I intended to, but I, I did still have a few days of TV watching plans in me that have been scuttled somewhat. Oh well, maybe it's all for the best. Robin will come back, and she won't notice a crack in the Fabergé egg. <laughs> Wait, what is that risky business? It's risky business. Wait, wait, another risky business reference? <laughs> I like the movie. I was young when it came out. What can I say? It was a formative experience. I had a crush on Rebecca De Mornay. What do you want from me? Okay, the the last part I can definitely uh, relate to. <laughs> All right. This week on the podcast, we will extend to two our streak of episodes with an interview with a fighter with a surname, Martin. After we got to know Frank the Ghost Martin uh, last week, this week we'll share our conversation from International Boxing Hall of Fame induction weekend with the one and only coal miner's daughter, Christy Martin. Uh, We'll also talk about Jake Paul switching pay-per-view opponents from the half-brother of a heavyweight champ, the son of a heavyweight champ. We'll preview Ryan Garcia's next fight, and Eric will count down his five favorite upsets of all time. But we start with a night of Showtime Championship Boxing from San Antonio, Texas, where we got three competitive bouts, topped by a split decision win for Ray Vargas over Mark Maxayo in a battle of unbeaten featherweights. 
And by the standards Vargas established over the last several years, a surprisingly exciting battle at that. Uh, this was the latest chapter in the Nacho Beristain versus Freddie Roach rivalry, and it was Nacho's fighter, Vargas, who prevailed at the end of 12 rounds. One judge had Magsayo winning by a single point, 114-113, but the other two had it 115-112 for Vargas. Uh, and I'll interrupt the recap to note that this was the only point swing of the weekend in our picks competition. You had Vargas by unanimous decision and got two points to my zero for Magsayo by split decision. We each got two points for the co-feature that we'll talk about shortly. So, Kieran, you are back in the lead, 56 to 55. Uh, anyway, interesting swings of momentum in this fight with a few tricky rounds to score. Vargas appeared to most to have built a lead through eight rounds, perhaps even a big lead. But Magsayo knocked him down with a right hand in round nine and did more good work in round 10. The fight was on the table with two rounds to go. But Vargas swept those final two rounds to pull it out. Uh, Vargas, after winning by decision for the eighth consecutive fight, moves to 36-0 and with 22 KOs, while Magsayo is now 24-1 and with 16 knockouts. Kieran, you predicted the Vargas victory. Anything surprise you in the way this played out, or was this pretty close to what you envisioned? And any other thoughts on the scoring or the performances of either boxer? It was a much more interesting and entertaining fight than I expected, I must say. And and although he lost, I, I think a fair amount of credit for that is due to Maxayo, who, you know, is the nature of of his style was one in which he wanted to come forward and press the issue and, and force Vargas to fight. Look, if you let him, if you give him the space and time, Vargas will sit on the outside and he'll jab you half to death and he'll look to have a nice, e easy night. But, you know, Maxayo didn't let him do that. And so Vargas determined that the way to fight him off was indeed to fight him off rather than purely, you know, box him. Uh, still took advantage of his reach advantage. He was throwing power punches from, from outside. But, you know, in the process of doing that, Vargas, he, he was making some mistakes. He was occasionally leaving himself open. He was leaning forward too much at times, looking to land power punches from too far away. And that left some openings for Magsayo. Um, and that made it a much more entertaining fight, as I said, but, and as you mentioned, but, you know, at the same time, you know, the fact that he committed to his punches like that, even if it meant, you know, his, his technique wasn't quite as, as, as nicely wrapped up as it, as it can be. It did prevent Magsayo, even as Magsayo pressed, it prevented him from coming inside uh, and imposing himself in more than bursts uh, and made it very difficult for Maxayo to close in consistently. It did leave Vargas open a couple times, but there were only a couple of occasions where Maxayo was able to take advantage of it, including that knockdown that you mentioned. Uh, yeah, so anyway, look, I thought it was an all-round more entertaining affair than I expected, but I did think there was an obvious winner. Mm -hmm. um, it was close and, and closer, you know, because of that knockdown, but I thought the two 115-112 scores would were just about right. Um, uh, I really don't know about 114, 113 for Maxayo, but at the same time, can't complain too much because I believe that the right result took place. Uh, look, Maxayo is going to catch some criticism for not doing enough. He was catching criticism online during the fight uh, and immediately afterwards, particularly after knocking Val, uh, uh, Vargas down and, and not sort of pressing his advantage. And that's all true, of course, but... I think you have to give Vargas credit for that, too. He, yeah. he could have retreated into his shell after being knocked down, perhaps tried to box off the back foot more. But he remained committed to his punches and to his power punches. And while that was potentially a risky strategy and that it might well have again left him open, it did make it really difficult for Maxayo to get in close and, and press the advantage that he needed to. So Vargas gets the win. Afterwards, he called out Leo Santa Cruz an indicator that that fight is, in fact, already in the works. So how interested are you in that matchup? And anything else you want to add, actually, on uh, about Vargas Maxayo? Uh, yeah, a few things to add before I get around to the, the Leo Santa Cruz question. Um, first of all, I, I learned in the pre-fight vignette that Vargas's dad is 85 years old, uh, which means he was pumping out kids in his mid-50s. That guy's a baller. <laughs> um, so uh, it's interesting with Vargas. He... he shows flashes of the boring Ray Vargas in spots, but yeah. but only flashes. Um, he was mostly pretty entertaining, and I don't know if he's a bit less mobile after the broken leg that kept him out for a while, if he's made a conscious decision to fight in a more mm. entertaining style, if it's just been a couple of better style matchups of late, but whatever the reason, this was a fun fight with a solid pace, some good action, some drama. It wasn't a great performance by Magsayo. I thought you know, the criticism that you referenced uh, him getting online, it was mostly warranted. But 
as you said, we have to give Vargas a lot of the credit for Magsayo not looking great. Um, for example, in round five, Abner Morris was criticizing Magsayo for not using the jab enough, not jabbing his way in. And that was valid criticism, but I think mostly Magsayo wasn't jabbing because he didn't enjoy the way Vargas was countering yes. him when he did jab. Um, it was an interesting fight to score. Um, most of the rounds that Vargas won were very clear cut, whereas Magsayo could have been winning some rounds and did win some rounds on my scorecard that were really felt like a, a, a coin flip at the, when the bell rang mm. to end the round. Um, and there were also a few rounds where Vargas had the edge, but then Magsayo landed one big clean shot that seemed to stagger Vargas just a bit. And so that made those rounds tricky to score. So I actually don't have a problem with the 114-113 card for Magsayo. I, I can see how that judge got there, even though it felt after 12 rounds like Vargas did deserve the win. Um, but full credit to Vargas for digging deep late. It, it really looked like his legs were badly weakened in rounds nine and 10. Mm -hmm. He just kept going down over and over on slips and pushes. Thought he didn't have much left and, and that Magsayo might just catch up to him. But then he went and won those last two rounds, which is no small feat when you're fading significantly through 10. Um, so the Santa Cruz question. Yeah, absolutely. Why not? Um, this is the benefit to Vargas not being so boring anymore is <laughs> now I'm interested in a fight that a couple of years ago I would have said, nah, pass. Why would Santa Cruz want to be part of a, a boring fight against a tricky guy like Vargas? But now it doesn't sound boring. Uh, they're around the same age. They're both from Mexico. If Leo can get back down to 126, then they're the same size. It'll attract fans. It's a very solid, appealing fight, and it isn't easy to pick a winner. And I totally get why Santa Cruz is the guy Vargas is calling out. But while Vargas is calling out Santa Cruz, the winner of the co-feature on Saturday is calling out Vargas. Uh, Brandon, the heartbreaker Figueroa, moved up to featherweight and not surprisingly got a tough challenge from Carlos Castro. But also not surprisingly, ultimately prevailed by stoppage. In the third round... Figueroa hurt and dropped Castro with a series of shots along the ropes, and Castro almost waited too long to get up, springing to his feet just before referee Mark Nelson could say 10. Three rounds later, in the sixth, Castro had Figueroa pinned on the ropes until Figueroa suddenly reversed the positioning, hurt Castro again, landed a series of shots, convincing Nelson to step in at 2.11 of the round. But in all the rounds where he wasn't getting dropped or stopped, Castro was doing fairly well, and the scorecards were split through five rounds. Uh... Figueroa is now 23-1-1 with 18 KOs, while Castro drops to 27-2 and two with 12 KOs. Eric, what did you think of the stoppage? What did you think of both fighters' performances? And would you rather see Vargas Figueroa or Vargas Santa Cruz? Hmm, that, that's a tough question. Um, I, I did just get done saying I'm very game for Vargas Santa Cruz, but I might like Vargas Figueroa even more. Um... That would be a great test of Figueroa's ability to pressure and overwhelm. And um, yet another Ray Vargas fight that I now see little to no <laughs> chance of it being boring. Um, so, yeah, I, I might slightly lean Vargas Figueroa over Vargas Santa Cruz if it were up to me. Um, by the way, ha has Brandon Figueroa entered the ring to Pat Benatar's heartbreaker before and I just didn't notice it? Or was this the I first time? Know. I don't know. Yeah. Okay. So at, at the very least, you didn't notice it either if he's done it before. It, it's no. an obvious choice, but a, a really good one. Uh, yeah. I will. I'll take that over some modern day rap song I've never heard. <laughs> uh, now get off my lawn. Um, so uh, it was interesting with this fight. I predicted last week that with Luis Neri's success from the Southpaw stance against Castro, that Figueroa would probably fight out of that stance a lot. And he did go right to it in the opening round. But then it appeared to me that Brandon was more comfortable in the orthodox stance. Uh, so he didn't stay southpaw for all that long. Kind of kept going back and forth a bit, but uh, mostly fought out of the orthodox stance. Um, that third round, very weird the way Castro almost didn't beat mm. the count. Either he was really hurt by a body shot in that sequence, and nine and a half was as soon as he could get up, or he lost tra track of the count. Um, either way, he did beat it, uh, and... Man, those CompuBox numbers from Figueroa that round, 46 landed, 134 thrown. <laughs> Crazy. Um, as for the stoppage, full disclosure, I bet not one, but two pizzas on Figueroa by KO. Um, I found it at plus 160, which was great value because clearly that was always the most likely way this fight would end. You and I both picked Figueroa yep. by KO. So I had to bet it. And then I noticed another sports book I use had it at plus 180. 
So I had to bet it a second time. Uh, <laughs> so with that in mind, I was not at all sad to see Nelson stop the fight. In the moment, it did feel premature. But on the replay, I counted 14 unanswered punches. All of them landed at least partially. A few of mm. them were very clean. One of them was a right to the body that may have frozen Castro and prevented him from fending off the rest. Castro didn't complain afterward. So my sense is that Nelson actually made a great read and stopped it at the perfect moment. But again, I'm a little biased because of my wagers. <laughs> um, the opening bout of the triple header featured last week's podcast guest, Frank Martin. Uh, but he had a short notice opponent change. Hard punching Ricardo Nunez fell out. So in stepped Jackson Mariñez, more of a boxer and less of a puncher and arguably more of a test than Nunez was going to be. Mariñez made life difficult for Martin for a while, won two rounds on two judges cards and three rounds on the third scorecard. But Martin's power broke through in round nine and he dropped Mariñez with a series of left right combinations with 10 seconds left and just 30 seconds into round 10. The fight was stopped as Mariñez was on his way down a second time. Kieran, what did you think of Martin's performance? And how important was him rallying to get the knockout in terms of raising his stock? I thought that ultimately it was a very good performance. It was an interesting change of opponent. Uh, I mean, granted, Mariñez was available because he was scheduled, I think, to fight on the undercard. But mm -hmm. he was such a different kind of opponent to Nunez. Yeah. Uh, you know, a boxer instead of a brawler. Uh, Martin had so little time to adjust and adapt. And so he ended up having to do that in the course of the fight instead of being able to sort of do so in, in training or in preparation. What I liked about what Martin did is that he had to adjust not once, but a couple of times in the fight. You know, Mar Marinas came out and had a pretty good opening round. Mm -hmm. Then Martin began to sort of take the initiative, figured him out a little. Um, you know, then, then Mar Marinas sort of came back at him and was getting timing him very well in like rounds five and six. And it looked as if, oh, maybe Marinas is going to take this back from him again. And then Martin figured him out a second time. And then when he had figured him out, he felt confident enough to step forward into his punches and then really let his hands go. And, and when he did that, then it was all a snowball effect and, and he took greater control. And Marinas really, once he let once once Martin really let fly with his punches, had had nothing at all to, to combat him with. Um, Marinas finds himself now on a rough three fight loss streak, but we all know he should have gotten the decision against Raleigh Romero. Yeah. Richard Comey is a pretty good boxer. There's no disgrace there. So for Martin to achieve a clear win against somebody who's been losing or, quote, losing against <laughs> opponents of that caliber, I, I think it's a really good statement. And, yeah, to your point, especially the way in which he stepped it up toward the end, yeah, that was really important for him in terms of making a statement. I noticed that there were a lot of comments online. There were a lot of wows and impressives and great wins, you know, in the immediate reaction for that. And, and yeah, I, I think that's definitely going to stand him in good stead. Look, what I like about Frank Martin, among other things, is that he, he's a thinker in the ring. Despite the fact that he didn't have much of an amateur career, that he turned pro late, that he didn't even start boxing until 18, as he talked to us about last week, he's, he's really mature and relaxed and cerebral in there. I love the way that he has the confidence to figure his opponent out and then step it up a notch. You know, it's, we sort of, when we were predicting it and, and previewing it, figured there might be an element of that um, against his uh, scheduled opponent, Nunez. And he did that again here against Mourinho's. Uh, I like the look of Frank Martin very much. Um, he says he's the most overlooked man at 135 pounds and not anymore i suspect on the basis of that performance yeah he, he just doesn't seem at all when he's in the ring like a guy who came to boxing late he doesn't have he does that not. feel to him he looks very comfortable and fluid and looks like a guy who's been doing this all his life yeah he does indeed uh one other fight of note this past week not on showtime uh, instead on the zone earlier in the day saturday from greenwich england uh, a mild upset i guess in the heavyweight division derek chisora avenged his 2016 split decision loss to Kubrat Pulev with a split decision victory of his own. Scores of 116-112 in each direction and a decisive 116-114 for Chisora. Both fighters are several years past their primes, but they made for an entertaining scrap. Um, and afterward, Chisora, who snapped a three-fight losing streak all against high-quality opposition, called out Deontay Wilder. Eric, bad idea or very bad idea? <laughs> and uh, what did you think of this fight? Did the right guy get his hand raised? Uh, I'll go very bad idea, a awful idea, uh, <laughs> terrible idea, horrendous idea. Uh, Chisora is way too easy to hit. Uh, 
and he also has an excellent chin and a big heart. So kind of a disaster in the making there. You know, is there a 2% chance he lands something big and upsets Wilder? Sure, but it's not worth it. Chisora versus Pulev was a nice reminder that if older fighters insist on continuing to fight, they should do so mostly against fellow older fighters. This turned out to be a very good, very even matchup between a 38-year-old and a 41-year-old who are both slow as hell. Uh, <laughs> remember those videos of Jake LaMotta shadow boxing in front of the mirror when he was yeah. in his 80s? <laughs> he would have beaten Chisora and Pulev to the punch. Uh, this was fun stuff, though. Um, the action mostly built as the fight went along. And once again, I have to do the full disclosure thing about betting. I took a shot on Chisora by decision at six and a half to one. Uh, so big time pizza party happening this week. Um, now, I did also have one losing bet this weekend. I, I bet on Mike Sayo by decision at a little better than two to one. So I want to make clear I wasn't perfect, but all in all, one of my best boxing betting weekends ever. Um, but again, I'm probably not to be trusted when I say that I think the right guy got the decision. Uh, I was scoring round by round, but I can't say I was scoring really carefully. And I had it 7-5 Chisora. Certainly could have seen 6-6. Six to six. Very close fight. But I do think the judges got it right. This wasn't a homer decision in England, I don't think. Mm. Uh, we have a fairly light weekend of boxing ahead, no Showtime fights, just one low-profile televised card on Friday and one semi-high-profile card on Saturday. On Friday on ESPN from Temecula, California, the headliner is a 10-round battle of unbeaten junior welterweights Arnold Barboza Jr. versus Danielito Zoria. And the next night on DAZN, staying in Southern California from what is now known as Crypto.com Arena, Unbeaten lightweight star Ryan Garcia fights for the second time in three months. Uh, Garcia, 22-0 with 18 KOs, is following up his lopsided decision win over Emmanuel Tago with a fight against Dominican veteran Javier Fortuna, who is 37-3-1 with 26 knockouts. I'm reaching the point where my interest in seeing Garcia against solid but not quite top 10 level opposition like this is waning. How about you, Kieran? Does this fight interest you? Is Fortuna at about a five to one or six to one underdog, according to the sports books, a live underdog? First of all, Crypto.com Arena is never going to sound right. And there's going <laughs> no. to be a time in the future where people are going to look back on us and wonder what our obsession with the whole crypto thing ever was. I suspect <laughs> that time is going to be 2023. Right. I think it's all falling apart very rapidly. But anyway, uh, yes, look, I hear you with regard to Ryan Garcia, actually. Um, Fortuna is a perfectly good opponent. He's a really solid one. Um, he's generally only fallen short against good to very good opposition. He's a good measuring stick. Um, but, you know, look, we've seen Garcia wipe out Romero Duno. We've seen him get off the deck to knock out Luke Campbell. We know he's good, possibly, maybe, probably even very good. If he defeats Fortuna, and especially if he beats him comprehensively, we'll know more about exactly how good he is or appears to be. The thing is, Garcia makes a lot of noise. There's a lot of stuff that goes along with him and being him. And obviously, yes, a large part of that is being a social media star and being a good looking lad and all of that. But ultimately, he is going to have to back it up in the ring. He's doing that so far. But the others are starting. The other sort of rivals around that, uh, you know, where he is in, in lightweight are starting to make bigger noises and show their, their class more. You know, Teofimo Lopez took on and beat Lomachenko. George Cambosis beat Lopez. Devin Haney beat Cambosis. Javante Davis has been speeding a sequence of good opponents. And here's Ryan Garcia facing good opponents, but no one you think, oh my God, I really wanted to see him face that guy. He's beginning to come across a little bit. And yes, I recognize that, you know, he had interruptions to his career. Right. But he's beginning to come across a little bit as that kind of, the sort of the over anxious dad at a t-ball or or little league game who's screaming at the umpire and shouting about how good his kid is but doesn't actually ever want to do anything except be on the sidelines or mm. be in the or being you know and, and just sort of scream and shout at people he is going to have to commit at some point he can still have that social media following and he's and he's and that's still going to happen but at some point the others are starting to if not facing each other the way we wanted to they're starting to face really good opposition and garcia needs to kind of step that up a little bit soon i, I kind of think if his in, outside the rank profile were a little lower maybe his current level of opposition wouldn't great 
a bit or right. become as underwhelming as it's threatening to let's put it that way but yeah. yeah look given the whole package Fortuna's a fine opponent but I don't think he's an especially live underdog I think it would be a shock if he were to win because I do think that Garcia is good and I think that we do want to see him kind of step it up and stop fighting with Canelo you know stop getting into all these different spats get the win against Fortuna look good and then let's really start to step it up Ryan we, we really need to see what you have yeah all right. Uh, we are going to throw it now to another interview we conducted in Canastota during Hall of Fame weekend with Christy Martin, part of the inaugural class of modern women's fighters in the hall. She and Lucia Riker were the two elected in 2020. And after a two year wait due to COVID, Christy and the rest of the class of 2020 finally got inducted. Uh, but we want to give just a bit of background before we roll the interview, because we touch on some aspects of Christie's remarkable story without always explaining what we're talking about. So just in case you don't know or have forgotten the details of her life outside the ring, in 2010, Christie was stabbed, shot, and left for dead by her husband and boxing trainer and manager, Jim Martin. She survived, and Jim went to prison, where he remains. After all that, Christy came out of the closet, and in 2017, she married Lisa Holowine, an opponent she'd beaten back in 2001. Uh, there was a Netflix documentary about Christy that came out last year, and her autobiography, written along with fellow new Hall of Famer Ron Borges, titled Fighting for Survival, My Journey Through Boxing, Fame, Abuse, Murder, and Resurrection, just came out a few weeks ago. So that's the background. Now, take it away. Kieran's voice from a few weeks ago. <laughs> We are joined now by former women's champion, former Sports Illustrated cover star, and new Boxing Hall of Famer, the coal miner's daughter, Christy Martin. Christy, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for having me. It's a great honor to be here. And congratulations on, on your Hall of Fame induction as part of the, the first class of the modern female fighters going in. Were you expecting, when you saw, I'm sure you were aware of some of the names on the list, were you kind of expecting that, you know what, I might be one of the, the, the two that's getting the call, or were you caught off guard when you were, got the call from Ed Brophy? Well, I, um, I definitely was hoping, mm -hmm. but, you know, as you go through the list and you see the names, you're like, oh my, and you know that there were a lot of, especially male um, media members, they weren't so happy about Christy Martin back in the 90s because they weren't really supportive of women's, women's boxing. Um, so you just didn't know, I mean, which way is it going to go? Will I get the call? Will I not? But when I got the call, of course, I was very excited. When you think about everything that you had to do, this, the, the extent to which you were a real pioneer, I mean, you were on Don King Showtime pay-per-views, for heaven's sake. Well, how does it make you feel now to look at, say, Katie Taylor and Amanda Serrano selling out Madison Square Garden and knowing that you played a role in helping that to happen? I hope I did play a role in, in, in helping that be easier for them. Um, but I, I am so proud of both those fighters. And, and I was fortunate enough to be in the garden that night. And I'm so glad I was there because to feel the emotion and the excitement, they not only sold out the garden, but they left everybody standing on their yeah. feet. Yeah. And, and I, I said over and over, everybody that left the garden or turned off their TV that night they didn't say anything about that being a woman's fight. Right. They said that was one hell of a fight. Yeah, right. And it didn't matter if it were two women or two men or, or two dogs. It was a great fight. Yeah, yeah. Do you, do you feel like your career has, you've sort of gotten more respect retroactively with <laughs> because of, as you said at the time in the 90s, people were like, oh, Christy Martin, women's boxing, it's a sideshow, whatever. Because of, of the way that the female side of the game has progressed, do people tr treat what you did with more respect now, you feel, than maybe was the case back then? Um, I, I think so, yes. You know, I think we get a little more, or I get a little more notoriety because of all those hard doors I helped knock down yeah. back in the 90s. And, of course, Don King gave me a great platform, a great opportunity that no other promoter was willing to give a female fighter at the time. And then Showtime put me on regular Showtime, Showtime pay-per-view. And I was, you know, for a minute, I was a staple with Showtime. So it was, it was pretty cool. And my, my career was a great career I'm, I'm very proud of. One of the things that very few of us realized at the time was not just what you had to go through to get in the ring and get attention, but what was going on in your life, what had gone on in your life beforehand 
what continue to go on in the life, the immense struggles that you had to deal with. You've now been documenting them. You've got a book coming out. There's a documentary. And I'm wondering how hard it was for you to get to a place where you felt comfortable sharing that kind of information. Well, first of all, it was like the boxing ring was home to me and where I was safe. And that's where I could... Um, I could let out frustration. Right. I could be aggressive. I could yeah. be um, sometimes an ass, but it was okay because it was in the boxing ring. So I, I, I was, uh, I loved my job and I felt most at home in, in the boxing ring. But it was, it was a struggle. It was, it was hard because to keep my private life private and, and everything looked so positive in the public and in front of the cameras, like I would often say, the, it seemed like I was on top of the world, but really the world was on top of me. Mm. And I just, um, I, I just got so low in my life that I didn't care. Jim had threatened to kill me for 20 years if ever I left him. And it just got to that point where I didn't care anymore. Right. My career was over. I didn't have to say boxing because it was really done. Right. And um, honestly, I didn't care to save me. So. Yeah. Um, I just decided now's the time I'm leaving and um, that was the time he tried to kill me as he said he would right how I mean how hard was it to sort of recover from that find your strength again find you you know your own agency and and get away from that once you had left him was there a, a, a period where it was still really hard or was that the start of a kind of liberation for you it, it definitely was the birth of a, uh, a new person. But the problem with that new person being born, that I have all these years of Jim Martin's voice in my head telling me that I wasn't good enough and I wasn't, you know, no one liked me. And the f boxing fans hated me, my family hated me. He had me convinced that, that I truly was alone in this world. And so I still hear his voice from time mm. to time and, and I don't know, even with this weekend, like mm. how awesome it is, there's part of me that, that hears him saying I don't deserve it. Mm. So it's, it's, um, it's still an everyday struggle and that, mm. that's what I feel like God left me here to help other people mm. and if by sharing my story I can help someone else, that's great, I'm doing my job. and. I may or may not be able to help me get back, you know, 100% on my feet. But if I can help someone else, then then I'm go with that, and mm -hmm. I, I I feel like I've done what God left me here to do. Yeah. So I, I watched the documentary, and I knew the broad strokes of your story pretty well. I wasn't prepared for just how emotionally powerful it was going to be, and not just the darkness, but the beautiful story of you finding Lisa uh, that. It was a former opponent and then you found love after careers were over and it you know the emotional spectrum is really covered in the documentary have you what's the reaction been like since it came out in terms of just like people coming up to you and being inspired by all different aspects of your story it's been overwhelming I mean when I say from around the world I literally mean from around the world I've gotten messages and what has touched me the most is the messages from the men Mm. And the men are saying, thank you so much for sharing your story because mm. you helped my daughter. Mm. You helped. And, and maybe it was a way that the fathers, it gave them a, a, a leeway into talking to about whether it be domestic violence, sexuality, mm. just being the underdog, you know, be what you want. My, my dad always told me, you can be the president of the United States if you want to be. You be anything you want. You know, nothing can hold you down. And so I, I guess I just in some ways lived by that. Um, but I was, you know, so torn because and one, one side of me wants to be positive and then Jim Martin was so overwhelmingly beating me down and, and just tearing me down um, each and every time something positive happened mm -hmm. in my life. Mm -hmm. was, it, was it tough to watch back the documentary seeing Jim interviewed in there and having him weighing in on, on all these things that happened? Yes, and I, you know, to be very honest, I thought maybe he'll show some remorse. Mm -hmm. Maybe he'll have something, he'll say something that I'll feel like he's sorry. Mm -hmm. And it was just the opposite. Right. I mean, he just showed the arrogant ass that he is. And, um, and you know, I don't, I'm pretty sure he didn't win over any fans. And, and um, he really showed 
the true him. Mm. And um, yeah, I I, I want to watch the documentary. I watched it once by myself, okay. and I watched it once with Lisa. And I would like to sit and watch it again, but I really just hate to hear his voice. Mm. Um, Understandable. <laughs> so it's tough. Yeah. But there's so many good things. I mean, yes. all those Don King days and the Mike Tyson stuff. That, I mean, yeah. it's some really good stuff that's in that documentary. So it's 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 not all bad. And, and, and particularly the, the Deidre Gogarty fight on Showtime that opened the door for everything that followed. Do you, do you ever catch yourself thinking about if that hadn't played out the way it did, the whole story is completely different? Absolutely. I mean, if, if Gogarty wasn't so tough as nails <laughs> and uh you know had she i think i knocked her down in the second round she got right back up and just fought like hell um you know probably if i hadn't bled everywhere <laughs> you know and yeah. um there were so many things that if this hadn't happened probably you know the career wouldn't have been what it was so it just took every little piece uh to make it successful mm. and, and um to lead us here this weekend it must seem looking back on it almost like a whirlwind not only because of the sudden fame the, the kind of attention that no female fighter had had to that point all of those elements that must have been great and positive and yet also there's all this negative stuff going on in the background looking back on it all must be just a strange whirl of emotions and feelings it is and and different times people have asked me would i do some anything different what would i you know would i change something would i not do the career and, and, and because my personal life and my private life were so intertwined, I, how can I say I wouldn't have done one without the other? Because I couldn't have done one without right, the other. Right. Um, so even preparing for, for this weekend um, and in the speaking and speech and everything, I, I, I felt Jim and you know, it was tied and, and, um, and I, I called my buddy Ron Borges and mm-hmm. I'm like, Ron, help me because I need to know how do I handle this? What do I say? What do I not say? I feel like people are expecting me to say something about him, mm. um, but but what do I say? Mm. And so we have a plan. Okay. okay. <laughs> we have a plan. It's a nice tease. <laughs> we have a plan. Okay. I hope you really get the opportunity, you know, when you're here, like boxing fans, as you well know, are, are amazing and I'm really dedicated, especially the people who come here. I hope you're able to feel over these next couple of days that it is a love from boxing fans and it's a really genuine love that you've earned with your work over the years. And I hope you get to feel that. This I, I think that, uh, you know, as much as Jim had beaten into my brain that, that the boxing fans didn't love me and that if, especially if they found out that I was gay, that they would all turn on me. It was, it has been, at least to my face, it has been just the opposite. And, and there's no, and we're getting older. Things are different now than they were 20 years ago. Yeah. But um, there's there's no one there's no one that has any hesitation of mm. still giving me a hug, telling me they love me, telling me that uh, they they're so happy for this weekend. And 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 usually they're like, "Where's Lisa?" So it's, it's not like <laughs> nice. um, there, there's just no hesitation and and it seems like i've had full acceptance great and finally uh anyone watching the video can see you're wearing the christy martin promotions logo on your shirt how do you like uh being being on the promotional side of i absolutely do not (laughs) (laughs) i mean it is so hard um it's it was so much fun being the fighter i loved it i loved my job i absolutely loved being in, in fights um but as a promoter you have to deal with all those personalities and it's different I mean these guys today guys and women you know it's about social media about how many likes they have about how many people are following them all that no go to the gym and learn how to fight Mm. and then they don't want to take fights against other good fighters they want to take guarantees and I'm like look if you want a guarantee you have to go to Sears because I don't (laughs) give guarantees I'm a promoter not a protector you know you have to fight on my shows I put my own guys in fights, so I'm not gonna take care of somebody else's right. fighters. Um, it's hard, and I, uh, you know, I, I, I just don't know how much longer I can hang in there with the promotion <laughs> thing. <laughs> All right, so you're not predicting that you'll be inducted a second time to the Hall of Fame as a promoter necessarily, but getting in once as a fighter is pretty darn good and, and well deserved. And congratulations, and thanks for taking a little time to talk to us. Thank you, guys. Thanks. Thank you. Thanks very much to to Christy Martin. I I really enjoyed that interview. And I I was really struck when we were talking to her about how clearly she remains 
damage and diminished, not just by the obvious physical abuse and by the attempted murder, but also the way in which she's also the emotional abuse, the way she's trying to rebuild her self-belief and self-confidence. You could tell, couldn't you, yeah. that she only kind of sort of believed all the things we were saying to her about how appreciated she was and all that she's done. And you felt like she was still trying to take all that on board. Gaslighting is a really powerful form of abuse. And mm. it's, it's great to see that she's kind of trying to come to terms with all of that and believe the fact that actually she is loved by boxing fans and and appreciated by everyone in boxing. And hopefully with the book and the documentary and now being in the Hall of Fame, she'll find herself in a happy place. Yeah. Uh, we move on now to the news. There's not much question what the biggest outside-the-ring boxing news of the past week was. Uh, last week, we noted that Tommy Fury couldn't travel to the U.S. for a press conference, and his August 6th Showtime pay-per-view fight against Jake Paul at Madison Square Garden was likely to be called off. This week, Paul announced that he has a new opponent, who, like Fury, has a famous last name. It is Haseem Rachman Jr., son of... Haseem Rachman, who won the heavyweight championship from Lennox Lewis in 2001. Rachman Jr. is 31 years old. He's 12 and won with six KOs. He lost his most recent fight, stopped in the fifth round by James McKenzie Morrison, son of another former heavyweight titleist, Tommy Morrison. Uh, notably, Rachman Jr. is a heavyweight. Most of his fights, he's weighed between 210 and 230 pounds, whereas Paul fights at about 190. So for this fight... There is a 200-pound limit at the weigh-in, and then the day of the fight, weight check, where, according to Dan Raphael, the fighters cannot be above 214. So, Jake Paul is still taking on an actual pro boxer, as he'd planned to. He's again found one with a meaningful name and a good record. Eric, what's your interest level in this relative to Paul Fury? And is Rockman, in fact, a tougher opponent than Fury was going to be? I think probably, yes. This is a slightly tougher fight than Tommy Fury would have been, although they're in the same ballpark. Uh, Rockman and Fury are both actual pro boxers who haven't yet beaten anyone any good and are probably somewhere on the club fighter level. Um, but it still does represent that step up we've been looking for. Now, Paul and Rockman sparred about 18 months ago. So Paul taking this fight, suggest to me that he felt he did okay. Some have speculated Rachman was taking it easy on him when they sparred. However well Paul did or didn't do when they sparred, he has progressed a bit as a boxer since that time 18 months ago. So, I don't know, definitely still an intriguing fight for him. A fight where I guess he should be a slight underdog. Um, I watched Rachman's loss to Morrison who appears himself to be nothing special. Uh, Rachman was doing okay, but really started running out of gas after a couple of rounds. Got caught, got dropped, got up, and vehemently protested the stoppage. It actually reminded me a lot of his dad complaining when the Tua fight in 98 got stopped. Mm. Um, anyway, he needs to get in better shape. Otherwise, Jake Paul can just try to get it into the middle rounds and figure that Rachman will be ready to fold. So maybe this 200-pound limit works to Rachman's advantage. You know, as long as he's not killing himself to get down to 200, he'll be getting himself in great shape, and he'll have a bit of a size advantage and maybe be fighting at what is actually his best weight. We'll see. I'd say I'm a tiny bit more interested in Paul Rachman than in Paul Fury, mm. but I'm not sure the same is true of the general public, as the yeah. Fury name resonates currently, the Rachman name only resonates with old farts like us. Yeah, I, I think that's right. I agree with you on just about every level there, actually. And that was that was absolutely my, my same thought in regards to how well will it do or how attractive is it to people not like us. And and the other thing is, Paul uh, is now what? Is he 4-0, 5-0? He's one of those. 5-0. Yeah. And now he's taking on a pro boxer with a 12-1 and record. Now he's taking on that pro boxer with a 12-1 and record because he doesn't think he's any good and he can beat him. But he's a 5-0 and fighter taking on a guy with a 12-1 and record. Now he's starting to do what a boxer should be doing at 5-0. and And, you know, that's perfectly fine. If he's taking on a guy he thinks he can beat at 5-0 and who's a pro boxer, that's great. And if he's picking on him because he's... You know, got the right name, so so be it. At least if he starts doing this, actually, even if they're cherry picked boxes, now he's actually doing the correct boxing thing. So now we'll start to see if he can actually box or not. Yeah, I mean, fact is, it's a better opponent than most guys are facing at five and absolutely. L. And of course, it's different with Jake Paul because 
there are certain expectations. If you're going to headline a pay-per-view, you can't take yes. on an Owen 14 opponent the way that you could have buried on some undercard. But, uh, but yeah, no, there are absolutely nothing to complain about here with this matchup. And it'll be interesting to see if he can get past it. Um, it's been a slow news week. Otherwise, not a ton on our undercard. Um, staying on the Paul Rockman event, Showtime announced that two undefeated prospects have been added to the pay-per-view undercard. Brandon Lee, with whom we are quite familiar, and Ashton Sylvie, with whom we are less familiar, uh, both against TBA for now. It was officially announced this week that Michaela Mayer versus Alicia Baumgartner, to unify almost all of the belts at 130 pounds, will be the co-feature to Clarissa Shields versus Savannah Marshall on September 10th, making this probably the biggest night in women's boxing history. Uh, the WBA has announced it is moving its headquarters into the U.S., relocating from Panama to Houston. And lastly, Manny Pacquiao has announced an exhibition match, his first since retiring last year and since losing his bid to become president of the Philippines. He will face YouTuber DKU in South Korea on December 10th. Kieran, anything worth commenting on here? I love Mayor versus Baumgartner, and I love that it's on the Shields Marshall card. It's a genuinely good fight, a genuinely intriguing fight. I would watch it whenever and wherever it was on, but for it to be a part of this card in the same year that we had Katie Taylor, Amanda Serrano, is an excellent sign of how, at least at the top levels, women's boxing is is really starting to to, to come into its own and and stand on its own two feet um, as not just great women's fights, but we're getting great fights that happen to involve women. Um, and I always enjoy watching Brandon Lee light fight. Uh, so I'm always, so I'm going to be looking forward to that. And I have to give full credit to those who put together Jake Paul's pay-per-view undercards for continuing to present opportunities for up and coming young boxers, whatever you think about Paul himself getting these opportunities in the main events. Um, as for those last couple of uh, news items, meh. Okay. That's all I've got to say about that. Um, speaking of meh, it's time for this week's tweet of the week, um, okay. which is a kind of like an ironic tweet of the week, I suppose. Um, the other day, uh, and we're not just picking on uh, another broadcaster here because we can. It just happened to leap out at me. The other day, DAZN Boxing tweeted out, uh, at Eddie Hearn names his top 10 heavyweights of all time, except they misspelled his, which is a difficult word to spell. <laughs> um, and the top three it included in the list were one, Muhammad Ali, two, Joe Frazier, Three, Mike Tyson. Mm. So we're starting to go off the rails pretty early on in <laughs> right. the year. So I clicked through at the rest of the list, I, I, and um, it didn't necessarily get any better. Uh, four was Lennox Lewis. Five was Sonny Liston. Mm. Six was Evander Holyfield. Seven, Riddick Bowe. Eight, George Foreman, and because he couldn't pick ten, nine to eleven were Tyson Fury, Anthony Joshua, and Alexander Usyk. <laughs> um, so we've got no Joe Lewis, no Larry Holmes, right. no Jack Tempsey or Gene Tunney or Rocky Marciano. And look, I, I don't know. I can't imagine this was a really serious thing that he spent a lot of time on. It might have been an off-the-cuff response to a question. Right. And Hearn's a promoter, so he wants to make sure some of his guys are in there, right? He's got Joshua against Usyk, but make sure they're on the top ten list or top eleven list. Making lists is objective. I've made all-time lists that people have hated, but yeesh. Um, uh, <laughs> at least some of the comments noted the absence of Holmes and Lewis in particular, and most of the comments I thought to the, the tweet were pretty good. Although one reply to a comment mentioning Dempsey asked rhetorically, can you really count Dempsey as a heavyweight when he weighed around 180? To which the answer is, yes. <laughs> yes, you can. Right. Um, there were, of course, some cheeky responses like no Kevin Kingpin Johnson equals no credibility, which made me chuckle. <laughs> That's good. Um, yeah. So anyway, I don't want to take the thing too seriously. And I doubt Hearn remembered even what he said after he said it. Um, and clearly three or four on his list deserve to be on it. And two or three more could make decent cases. But Riddick, Usyk, after what, two, three heavyweight fights? <laughs> right. Sometimes the desire to create social media content that gets likes and interactions and generates controversy sure does encourage the interwebs to be invaded with dross. Yeah, and it's not like Eddie Hearn is new to the sport. He's been around it his whole life. It would be a little more excusable if uh, somebody who is now powerful but, you know, just came to boxing in the last five years was putting out a list that forgot right. that there were heavyweights prior to 1960. Um, <laughs> so, hey, look, I'll say this, Freddie. He got off to a good start. 
he had number one right. <laughs> yeah. And, yes. and, and then it yeah. fell apart quickly. And by the time he got to Riddick Bow, it had entirely imploded. Indeed. Oh, well. Sorry, Eddie. Oh, well. Yes. All right. Well, uh, if you hated that top 10 list, we have now <laughs> a top five list for you that you might like. How's that for a hard sell? There you go. Okay. Nice one. This top, this top five list will be less horrible than the top ten list you just heard. I promise okay. you. Um, it is time for this week's top five countdown. And, you know, Kieran, a, a lot of the time you sell your assignments to me in advance with, oh, this will be an easy one. And then sometimes it is and sometimes it isn't. This time you didn't necessarily give it that sales pitch. Um, but this one... This one was, in fact, easy. Um, you tasked me with ranking my personal top five favorite upsets, favorite victories by an underdog. So I didn't have to worry about historical significance. I didn't have to justify anything. I just needed to make a list based on my preferences, and I very much enjoyed that. Um, now, I did add a parameter myself last week. I said that I was going to stick with fights yeah. I watched unspoiled. Either I saw it as it happened, or maybe I saw it on a few hours delay without knowing the result. Right. In all cases, I got to enjoy the upset without knowing going in that an upset was coming. So Douglas Tyson, which I heard about long before I actually saw it, doesn't count. Other classic upsets from generations ago don't count. Every upset on my list took place between 1997, when I started covering boxing, and now. So let's get it started. And at number five, this is the one on my list where I'm sort of tweaking the definition a bit. I'm leaning heavily on the word favorite, <laughs> it being my favorite, and not as heavily on the word upset. It was an upset, but that is definitely not the first thing people think of with this fight. I didn't have anything else in my top five that I attended in person, so that was one more reason to make sure mm -hmm. and squeeze this in here. At number five, I have Mickey Ward, Arturo Gatti, one. Uh, people may forget now, but Mickey was about a four-to-one underdog. People were writing him off. He was coming off a loss. Gatti was coming off his excellent win over Teron Millet. I was just about the only journalist I knew of picking Ward to win because I just knew he wouldn't fold like Millette did, that he would mm. keep coming, and it was at least going to be a tough fight for Gaddy, no matter how big the skill gap. Um, so anyway, it was an upset, and it's my all-time favorite fight, so it kind of has to be one of my favorite upsets, even if the fact that it was an upset is not a defining quality of the fight the way it is for everything else on my list. That's interesting. I'd completely forgotten that aspect of it, um, that, that Ward was, was that... You know, big of an underdog because, of course, I just think that yeah, the whole quality of the fight and then the trilogy just right. sort of blew that all away. But yeah, no, that's a good. I mean, they're all good choices because they're favorites. So there <laughs> right. you go. Nothing, You're not allowed wrong. to disagree with anything. Exactly. <laughs> all right, uh, my number four is the classic old man beats young buck fun upset. Uh, the old man is Michael Carbajal, who was only 31, not that old, but that was quite old at the time for a junior flyweight. He was up against 20-year-old Jorge Arce. This was supposed to be a passing of the torch, and most of the way, that's what it appeared it was going to be, until Carbajal, hopelessly behind on the scorecards, landed a stunning right hand in the 11th round, and Arce went down and couldn't recover, and Carbajal scored the shocking win, and most remarkably, never fought again. What a way to go out. What a fun upset. Since I didn't watch Foreman Moore happen live, mm. this is maybe as close as I can come with a semi-washed old guy scoring a come-from-behind one-punch knockout. He seemed older than 31, didn't he? Yeah, I, I, was, I, I, I looked it up. Time. <laughs> I looked it up, and I was expecting him to have been like 33 or 34 at yeah. least, so I was surprised, yeah. Yeah, yeah. I didn't see the fight at the time. I was just, I can't remember where I was when I saw the result. And yeah, I just remember thinking, I think, A, wow, Michael Carbajal's still fighting? <laughs> and, and B, what a, what a big upset that was. That's a good one. Okay, uh, so the two fighters on the wrong end of my upsets so far were not necessarily fighters anyone was rooting against. Nobody mm. hated Gaddy or Young Arce, as far as I know. At number three, an upset that was fun because it was fun to root against the guy who lost. I'm talking about Nassim Hamed, suffering his first and only <laughs> loss against Marco Antonio Barrera in 2001. I actually kind of liked Hamed. I very much enjoyed what he brought to the sport. Yep. But... 
he was also a pompous a-hole, and he'd <laughs> pretty much worn out his welcome by this point, and he was widely expected to beat the smaller Barrera, but instead, Barrera boxed circles around him, frustrated him, landed some of the most clean shots imaginable on the perpetually off-balance Hamed, and then became a legend by running Naz into the turnbuckle en route to a lopsided points win. If you didn't take joy in watching this unfold, you were either related to Naz or dead <laughs> inside. You know, it's funny. He was the big favorite, of course, but I will never forget. I went into it thinking, mm, this, you know, maybe Barrera is going to win this, partly from looking at Emmanuel Stewart's face when he had been ringside commenting on Barrera's previous outing. And right. I forget. It, it was, was uh, Jesus Salud. Yes. Jesus Salud. And yeah. Stewart makes the makes the comment. I think we just picked the wrong Mexican. <laughs> yep. <laughs> yeah, he was. It's not that Ahmed was a huge favorite, uh, but he was he was a favorite. Yes. And I don't remember too many people actually predicting the upset. No, agreed. All right. Number two for me. Nothing against Anthony Joshua, but come on. What could be more fun than a fat guy beating up a guy built like AJ and claiming the heavyweight title in the process? Uh, yes. Madison Square Garden, Andy Ruiz, Anthony Joshua. This is, in terms of the odds, the biggest upset on my list. It was nearly unthinkable going in. We knew Ruiz had skills. We knew he had great hand speed for a heavyweight. But come on, (laughs) this wasn't supposed to happen. Ruiz went down in the third round, according to script. But then he deviated from the script, and it was just a delight watching the fat guy knock out Joshua and then chubbily jump for joy afterward. (laughs) I hope I don't get accused of body shaming. I also hope I don't get accused of being anti-Brit after Joshua and Hamed back-to-back. But uh, this is just one damn fun, shocking upset. Yes, yes, indeed. That's it? That's all you got for me is yes, yes, indeed? But it was. (laughs) You're you're running out of steam, Karen. The other thing that's particularly enjoyable about it was just the fact that Chris Mannix confidently <laughs> predicted the imminent demise of right. Andy Ruiz after that first knockdown. And right. okay. you, it gets extra points for that. A, a composed and ferocious finisher or something like that. That's as, what it was. Joshua. Yeah. That's yes. right. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, you know, commentators curse. We can all do it. Right. But it was Chris. So it was funny. <laughs> okay. <laughs> all right. Lastly. Take the joy of watching Nassim Hamed get his comeuppance and multiply it by 50, and you have my number one favorite upset. This was an obvious pick from the moment I started thinking about the assignments. And it was a Showtime fight. Uh, Good to get a Showtime fight on here, number one. (laughs) Yep, I am talking, of course, about December 14th, 2013. Marcos Maidana handing Adrian Broner his first loss at the Alamo Dome in San Antonio, site of this past weekend's fights, interestingly enough. Look, uh, Broner is fighting on Showtime again next month. Clearly, Steven Espinosa has a soft spot for him, or he still draws ratings, whatever the case would be unwise for me to go off at length on how loathsome I find Adrian Broner. <laughs> Just know we that... We still have a couple of weeks before that. We can <laughs> right. Preview I got to save a few things, I suppose. Uh, but uh, just know that the entire boxing world wanted him to lose. And few were expecting that gift to arrive on this particular night. Boxing Twitter had maybe its greatest night ever. Maidana beat and embarrassed him. And... For those 48 minutes, I almost believed in the existence of a god. So easy pick for number one for me. Was that really 2013? Yeah. Oh, Lord. So the downslope of Adrian Broner's career has been like twice as long as, as the, the sort of upslope at the yeah. beginning, really. Yeah, you're, you're right. It's been a, an eight-year slide, uh, eight and a half years at this point since the first loss. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. Oh, oh my goodness. Yes, that was. And I can't remember... Because, well, I'm old, but I can't remember <laughs> like how extensive like Twitter was at that back in 2013 and whether it erupted. And I, my recollection is that, that, that it did, but yeah. whether it did to the same extent that it would now, I don't know. I just remember there being, you know, this was the kind of fight and the kind of night for which the Germans inv- invented schadenfreude. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Well said. Yeah, no, there was definitely there was like a party going on on Twitter all throughout that yeah. fight. And pretty soon after it was over, there were some memes of like the the shot of Broner falling halfway through the ropes when he got knocked down. Right. And and uh, the moment, of course, where Madonna came up from behind him and simulated some gyrating sexual gestures. Uh, there was uh, people people delighted in every last bit of it. And th- I guess maybe this was so 2013. Twitter was pretty big by the, that point. This was maybe 
the first truly great night of boxing Twitter. There you go. There you go. <laughs> All yeah. right. So um, I have some honorable mentions. Um, okay. I guess I have to include Rachman Lewis, although I didn't get to watch it until the next morning. Okay. And a jerk friend of mine more or less spoiled the result for <laughs> me. So that's why it doesn't make my top five is that I – he didn't quite gotcha. spell out what happened, but he had hinted strongly enough that I kind of knew it was coming. Um, another one I was ringside for, Joe Smith Jr., KO1, Andrew Funfara. Just fun and oh. unexpected, and I happened to be yep. there. Um, Carlos Baldemir upsetting Zab Judah. Mm. Loses some luster due to the path Cal- uh, Baldemir went down, as we've discussed, but it was great fun in the moment. Antonio Tarver, KO2, Roy Jones was so shocking that I have to mm-hmm. mention it. Danny Williams, KO4, Mike Tyson. Oh, yeah. It was a fun brawl and a big upset. Uh, Hopkins, Trinidad. Uh, Again, I was there, uh, so that helps a little. It was historic. Still the greatest performance I think I've ever witnessed in a boxing ring. And not a massive upset, but an upset. And lastly, Shane Mosley, Antonio Margarito. Oh, good call. So this is a tricky one because it might have made the top five, but in the moment, we didn't know quite what a heel Margarito was. You know, yes. the hand wrap controversy was fresh news and still being processed. So I would say in the moment, it was fun, but not as satisfying as it would feel after the fight. Gotcha. Uh, so those are mine. Uh, thoughts? Uh, any others that you'd like to mention? Yeah, I made a little list. I just I just sketched down five, um, okay. two of which just happened to make a big impression on me when I was a fan, and three of which I happened to be ringside for. Okay. Um. The first two are ones from when I was a fan. Number five, uh, Lloyd Hunnigan, TKO7, Donald Curry. Sure. Huge upset. This was uh, September 1986. I was an 18-year-old boxing fan. I've been following Hunnigan a little bit. You know, as happens, you grow up with your own country's boxers a little bit. At the time, Donald Curry was considered one of the very best boxers in the world, pound for pound. Hunnigan was unbeaten, but he was kind of crude. Uh, Hunnigan just, you know, his pressure just took the fight out of him on route, on route to a seventh round stoppage. And and British media and boxing fans still use that as the yardstick for British fighters coming to the United States to take on American champions. Um, number four, I had Holyfield, TKO 11, Mike Tyson, uh, November yeah, 1996. Uh, I was still several years away from ever being ringside or writing about a fight. I remember I watched this alone on pay-per-view on my small TV in my apartment on DuPont Circle in Washington, D.C. I didn't even really have boxing fans among my friends. And the reason I put it on here is I remember afterwards, I was like so in shock that I had to go for a walk around the block in the hope I'd bump into other boxing (laughs) fans who were also going for a walk around the block in shock just so I could find someone to talk to about it. Um, the, The top three I was all ringside for. Three... Lehman Brewster, TKO5, Vladimir Klitschko. Um, that remains one of the most astonishing fights to witness. Uh, Klitschko just dominant through four rounds until suddenly it all went to pieces. Um, watching Klitschko just suddenly look to hit the wall, then go down, and that whole business of him trying to crawl to the corner while Manny Stewart just looked frozen in just disbelief or lack right. of comprehension. Batch hit crazy. Um, Number two, Kevin McBride over Mike Tyson. Okay, right. Memorable because it was the last pro bout of Tyson's career, and I was there. And who would have thought that the last fight of Tyson's career would be against that opponent in that location? Um, I was in the first couple of years of my boxing writing career. I was mostly contributing freelance pieces for ESPN while working full-time as a communications consultant for Greenpeace in Washington, D.C., and the fight actually took place across the street from the Greenpeace office. Hmm. So I spent my day doing something, save the whales, whatever, and then uh, walked across and and covered it uh, from the auxiliary media, media section. They... Uh, don't come as no hopey as McBride <laughs> and everything seemed to be going according to script until suddenly Tyson realized it wasn't, uh, realized he couldn't beat him, tried to break his arm and couldn't. And, uh, and then just basically sat on the canvas and then sat on his stool and decided to come out, not to come out. Right. And number one on my list, because I was ringside for it, you mentioned it, uh, Antonio Tarver KO to Roy Jones. Okay. Um, yeah, look, Roy had a tough time against Tarver the first time around, but 
I think most of us just attributed it to him going, getting used to 175 after having stepped up to heavyweight and embarrassed John Ruiz. Uh, I mean, Jones was considered. I, I realized there must be a generation or there might be a generation of boxing fans listening to this who only really have firsthand knowledge of the Roy who stayed on too long. Right. Not of the Roy prior to this fight who just seemed untouchable. And I just remember, A, I could barely believe what I was seeing. And I've heard boxing crowds roar and 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 cheer and boo. I'm not sure I've heard them just gas right the way that this crowd did. And then after a pause, everyone it seemed everyone in the arena got on their phone um, <laughs> to like tell people at home what had happened right. or to check in with people watching the pay per view just in case that this had actually happened. Such a huge shock. This still feels like the biggest shock in the moment that I was ringside for. So it's interesting that uh, even though we had that one overlap between one of my honorable mentions and one of your top ones, otherwise there was no inter- overlap, which kind of makes sense with a favorite type right. list. Um, and the the McBride-Tyson one is interesting in that I, I would never think to include... Now, obviously, you were there, which, which colors Otherwise it somewhat, I would but... Have included it. Right, yeah. I would never think to have included it just because it was so sad that I couldn't yes. consider it favorite. Yes. Danny Williams over Tyson was a little less sad and a, and a little more thrilling to watch unfold. But by the time Tyson lost to McBride, it was just such a sad scene you were playing out. It was just so obvious that he wanted absolutely nothing to do with boxing at that point yes. and, and was staying on the canvas because there was just no reason for him to get up at that point. Yeah, and afterwards... In the press conference, he just said, you know what, no disrespect, but if I can't beat this guy, I can't beat anybody, so right. I'm done. And and you could sense the relief coming off him when he, when he said that. And yeah, and you know, and of course, it's different reasons for them to be favorite. The schadenfreude reasons, like you're right. number one. <laughs> yes. or, or for me, it was just the experience of being there for those right. three or, or of being a fan. And so, yeah, maybe we should pick favorite as a list more often because it's less likely to generate overlap and we have different reasons for them to be favorites perhaps yeah, yeah i think as a at least an occasional thing to frame yeah. things this way uh, this worked out well all right that will do it for this episode of showtime boxing with raskin and mulvaney we'll be back next week for what is looking like a slow spot on the fight calendar it's still the summer doldrums but we'll be coming out of it soon and i'm sure we'll find someone interesting to talk to because we always do and we'll probably find something interesting to say because at one point we have to um <laughs> until then thank you very much for listening Stay safe be kind.